On this episode of the Anthony Bradley Show, I'll be having a conversation with Dr. Carrie Lee Merritt. She is the author of Masterless Men, Poor Whites, and Slavery in the Antebellum South, published by Cambridge University Press. It is an absolutely fascinating history of the absolute disdain and contempt that the master class had toward poor white men. And I look forward to having you join us for this enlightening conversation. Well, thank you again for joining me on the Anthony Bradley Show. I am really excited today because this topic is a topic that I absolutely love, and I am, I am actually giddy, genuinely giddy to talk about this topic today. I found a book. I can't even remember how I found this book, but it has really opened up my imagination for some of the things that I knew, but there were, there were just so many blanks that I had to fill in, and this book did such a great job. We are joined today by a Dr. Carrie Lee Merritt. He works as a historian and writer in Atlanta, Georgia. She earned a BA from Emory University and her MA and PhD from the University of, of Georgia. Her first book, uh, Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South, published by Cambridge University Press, is the subject of our discussion today. It won the Bennett Wall Award from the Southern Historical Association. This honors the best book in Southern economic and business history, published in the previous two years, as well as the President's Book Award from the Social Science History Association. Merritt also is co-editor with Matthew Hild of Reconsidering Southern Labor History, Race, Class, and Power, University of Florida Press, which won the 2019 Best Book Award from the United Association of Labor Education. Her most recent project is co-edited with a colleague. It's titled Afterlife, Loss and Redemption in Pandemic America. Dr. Carrie Lee Merritt, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Anthony Ratliff Show. I'm really delighted to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about this. So could you just tell us before we get into this book, you have this brand new project about the pandemic. Explain what this afterlife discussion is is about. So this is coming out in October with Haymarket Press. It is co-edited by Raylan Barnes of Princeton and Yohuru Williams of St. Thomas University. And we've got this all-star lineup of historians all across America who have basically written essays about their experiences in pandemic America, their experiences losing loved ones to COVID, their experiences fighting uh, against racism in the Black Lives Matter protests, their experiences with active shooters in places like El Paso. And so it really is supposed to be a living history and it's supposed to serve both as a, a primary source document but also just a show of solidarity with all the loss and suffering that we've we've gone through these past few years that I think in a lot of ways hasn't really been reckoned with or recognized. You know, I don't want to say it's just all doom and gloom, though it really does show that that human beings are just so resilient and there is a path forward throughout all of this. Yeah, it's been such a difficult last two years. And as many of us have been saying, I mean, there'll be books written about 2020 and 2021, probably for the rest of, of human existence, because it was just such a, in many cases, so traumatic and, and just life-changing for all of us in so many ways that we had not anticipated. Are you from Atlanta, by the way? Just curious. So I was born in Southern Mississippi because my parents were in school down there, but I lived in Metro Atlanta most of my life. Okay. So I, I actually was born and raised in Atlanta. I was raised in East Point. So I was born downtown. My parents lived over by Morehouse in, in that part of town. They moved uh, to East Point in 1971. We are literally like 100 yards from the Atlanta East Point line down uh, in, in Southwest Atlanta, 285 and, and I-66. So it's a perfect location being gentrified right now, it's really fascinating. We're eight minutes from the airport. We're 12 minutes from downtown. So it's it's a pretty hot hot spot right now. So I, mean, you I know exactly where you are. Yep. You mentioned Emory. I thought, oh, yeah, that was that was a school I couldn't get into when I came out of high school. So <laughs> I didn't have the academic chops to get in. So I actually went to Clemson just up the road and then left the area for, for, for graduate school. So how did you how did you get interested in this topic? I mean, why, 
why the antebellum period and why like poor white people. I mean, one of the things that I've, I've really been interested in in my own work is helping people recognize the fact that this is a missing cohort and demographic that I think explains so much about some of the things that we're seeing today, especially with working class and lower class whites and their politics and things like that. So it's not a popular topic. So I'm, I'm really curious, like, how, how did you get interested in this? And it certainly wasn't a popular topic while I was writing the dissertation. The book came out right at the rise of Trump, which is when people, of course, started blaming poor whites for, for the rise of Trump, essentially. And that's when it kind of got you know a lot of press. But nobody wanted to fund this research, believe me, back when I was actually doing it. It came about just I'm a white Southerner growing up in the Deep South. I come from a racist family, a racist culture, was raised in a ra- racist public schools. And in many ways, it's a self-reckoning, you know, it's a kind of realizing who I am and the lies that I've been fed uh, throughout my own life. And interestingly, I was growing up in Metro Atlanta. And so I was mainly with a bunch of Northern kids and a bunch of Northern white kids in public schools in that area. My family comes from near where you went to Clemson in this little tiny mill village, this cotton mill village. And I do come from poor whites, at least on a couple of sides of my family. My grandmother who worked in the mills there actually had, you know, maybe sixth to seventh grade education and was impoverished. And you see those cycles of poverty replaying themselves over and over again. And so I would go back and visit them during the summers or spend, you know, a couple of weeks during the summers or at holidays and really see kind of the class divide in that little town. And one set of my grandparents who were solidly middle-class due to benefits like the GI bill, which let my very poor white grandfather go to college and get an education. They were in the middle-class section of town, which was totally segregated. But if you went to my really poor grandmother's house right by the mill, that was a completely integrated street. That always struck me as something that, that people didn't really talk about in the South is that if you were poor white, you, you were Yes, you were racist in many ways, but you were actually living and working with Black people a lot of your lives. And there was, you know, a lot of intermixing and, and interracial families that get left out of the narrative. Absolutely. My, my dad is from Atmore, Alabama, which is in Escambia County, which borders Escambia County, Florida. And he's of the Jim Crow generation. And he, he recently told me about the local juke joint. And he, he said that he said that it was interracial. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, in the 40s and 50s, what you'd had is at the juke joint, he said the front would be country Western music and the back would be blues. And if you were black, you had to walk around the back and enter the back to go to the blues section. You couldn't come in on the country Western side, but there were whites and blacks drinking and dancing together in the juke joint in the back with all the blues music but they couldn't, but blacks weren't allowed to go to the country Western section. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, people just kind of hanging out and mixing. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. So that, you know, there's, there's so much of that, that history there that people don't realize there's way more mixing. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. The title of the book, you use the word masterless. And most people have no idea why you even introduce this distinction between those who had masters and those who, who didn't. It's often thought that the South just had two classes of people, two races of people, just whites and blacks. But you introduced this distinction, masterless. What does that word mean and, and, and why did you decide to use that? So obviously it refers to the fact that Deep South, the, the section that I look at, the Cotton South, which are primarily the states of South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. I don't get into Louisiana because that's a very different racial structure as well as different legal system. But those states have close to 50% of their population enslaved Black people by 1860. And so this creates a really dangerous dynamic in these states because contrary to a lot of the racist history that has been written beforehand, you know, Enslaved people were not docile, you know, field workers. They were constantly rising up. There were revolts happening all of the time. And so when you have half of your population essentially enslaved, you have to create almost a police type society in order to just make sure there's not just constant rebellion and revolt. 
And so I argue that if you really look at the class structure of white society, the 50% that's left, you can really break that down into thirds. And the first third is the really rich plantation holders who own multiple enslaved people, own the vast majority of land in the South and are, are really, you know, by our standards today, they would be multi, multi, multi-millionaires. And they control everything. They control law, politics, everything in the region. And then there's another third who are yeoman farmers. These are people that own land and perhaps an enslaved person or two. They're basically self-sufficient. They're trying, they're people on the come up, but they're not totally um, economically okay in life. These are usually like second and third sons of big plantation holders. And all of the wealth is still kept in this, this tiny little group uh, of white people. But then so the, the last third are, are poor whites. And these are people that don't own any land and don't own enslaved people. And I argue that they actually form kind of a challenge to planters and plantation holders in many ways, because not only are they you know, not able to be mastered as laborers the way that they can brutalize and torture and even kill enslaved Black people, they then are, many of them are left kind of without jobs and without work and without livable wages. So they become in many ways this criminal underclass, you know, and a lot of them are, are basically being arrested for vagrancy because they literally have nothing to do but sit around and get drunk all day in the streets and create chaos, especially with Black people. I argue that that's one of the planters' big fears is that these poor whites will eventually band together and will be emboldened enough by all these things that they're doing with enslaved people and, and free Blacks throughout the region and overthrow this you know tiny elite group of whites that have been controlling everything in the South. You introduced this marginalization of these sort of second-class whites by talking about the Homestead Act of, of 1862, that really sets up, it really sort of codifies in, in law and in, in practice this division. Can you explain what the Homestead Act was and kind of what, what, what led up to it? And why was it such a big deal? Sure. So the Homestead Act was something that would have given every white man who wanted it in America a plot of land, usually the the call was for 60 acres of land and they would basically have get the deed to land and they'd have to go out and work the land and improve it, put some kind of a housing structure on it and start planting crops. And then the government after a set number of years would give them the title of the land, the deed to the land, just because they're basically wanting white settlement there. This is the time of, of native American you know, removal and extermination in the West, very horribly brutal time in our nation's history. And what they're essentially doing is removing Native Americans from the West while simultaneously telling Black people who have been enslaved for generations and generations that they can't get 40 acres and a mule, and then giving all that land to white people and not just white Americans, but white settlers. You've got you know all of the West being taken and given to white settlers and white companies and corporations, essentially a lot of it as well. And so this is where you really get the genesis of the huge, huge, huge wealth gap in America is this, you look at the, the richest people in America right now, and so many of them are these huge landholders out in the West, these white families who, who were originally just given that land. There was no interest in, in giving this sort of advantage to poor white people, uh, particularly those that they considered, you know, sort of trash, right? Is that is that fair to say? Right. So the whole reason it doesn't become law until after the South secedes in 1862 is that these Southern plantation owners did not want it to pass because they didn't want poor whites getting land and then voting against slavery, right? So when you have all these Western states or Western territories coming up for statehood, they were worried that poor whites would go west and populate these states, and they already had a disdain for slaveholders and slavery itself, even if they're racist. You know, yes, they are racist, but they still did not like slavery as an institution. They saw it as hurting their own socioeconomic interests. They saw that they could not compete for jobs or living wages against brutalized enslaved labor. Slaveholders were terrified that that would create an imbalance in Congress of the majority free states instead of majority slave states, which they had throughout almost the entire antebellum period. It's really important for people to understand that the master class had intense 
vehement contempt and disgust for poor white people. It was it was emotional. And this idea that the South was this this sort of fluid place where all white people just loved each other is just not true. I mean, they could not stand poor white people. And the last thing they wanted was poor white people to be close to them and their children and their families and receive all of the benefits that they received as the master class. I think I think that's a and this is why I love the book so much is that you do such a great job of explaining exactly why and how the sort of master class marginalized poor white people on purpose, which so many people don't don't understand. There were some labor tensions in the antebellum period, a lot of people are unaware of the fact that poor whites and black slaves and freed slaves often worked not just adjacent in the same property, but they intermix in the same job sometimes. And, and that really introduced some, some, some labor tensions. What were, what were some, of those, some of those tensions that emerged with this adjacency with sort of poor whites and, and blacks and slaves? So it gets really complicated, but essentially what happens in the 1830s and 40s is that there are about 800,000 enslaved people sold from the Upper South to the Lower South, and they flood the, the cotton market. And so poor whites who had always basically worked as agricultural day laborers or sharecroppers or tenant farmers were basically displaced from that labor market uh, in a lot of ways. And so this is when you have poor whites either fleeing the region and going up to the Appalachian mountains or going down into like the wire grass areas, the swampy areas and kind of living on their own kind of away from society. Or you have white men who start moving around constantly in search for non-agricultural jobs. And this is basically in construction. They call it mechanics. Back then they used the word mechanic to basically refer to any kind of labor that was not agricultural. So these are these are people working on railroads, working on building new roads, any kind of infrastructure, bridges especially. So these white men who are working in these jobs, they, you know, they're they're not paid well. It's not a living wage. They're sh- it's short-term work, like I said. So they're constantly moving around, which creates uh, really fractured family lives. These are people who are not getting married, you know, whether in front of the government or in a church, and they have kind of short-term relationships. And a lot of the households are actually headed by poor white women. And so, I mean, you see these tropes of like all of the, the horrible stereotypes that white supremacists use against you know, minorities today. It's the same, it's the exact same stereotypes they were using about poor whites back then because it's a stereotype of poverty. You know, it's, it's what poverty creates in someone's life. And you're, you're totally right. Their, their disdain for poor whites was they, they actually almost racially othered them in some ways. And I do not compare their plight to blacks whether enslaved or free at all. There is no comparison. There were no white slaves, but planters absolutely hated them. They thought they were racially inferior to upper-class whites and even yeoman farmers. And there was a a big talk about, by, by the time Blacks had earned their freedom in the South, there was a big talk about whether or not poor whites would be able to keep up with newly free Blacks and whether it was worth trying to even educate poor whites at this point. There really was a lot of othering in a lot of ways that was class driven, but had a lot of kind of pseudoscience based, almost racial based background to it. Well, it was, it was essentially a form of eugenics, right? Right. I mean, these, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, that the eugenics movement was first launched against poor white people. I mean, that's how it, it was inaugurated against poor whites. I mean, they they, they forcibly sterilized 2,000 poor white women. That was how it got started because there was just such a contempt and disdain for these people. And it was just so interesting, right, because Northerners could not understand why it is that white people were, were like this. I mean, if you kind of read some of the the literature from Northerners who traveled down South and they saw lower class white people, they were just – they were – astonished. They they really never seen white people living in, in these conditions. You know, what one of my one of my interests in this topic really emerged. I, I teach religious studies and so I, I'm in the Presbyterian tradition. And so the whole Scots Irish immigration to the Carolinas is so much a part of my my own work. And I, I spend part of the summer in, in Northern Ireland 
And when I started to do the research and I was going back and forth between Northern Ireland and back down south, I'm thinking this is the same culture. In fact, the first time I had moonshine was at Clemson. The second time I had moonshine was was in a town called Ballymena, about thirty miles north of Belfast. Right. It, it, in fact, it was it was the I was in this guy's apartment, and within probably 10, 15 minutes, he was like, "Do you want some moonshine?" And I'm thinking, "Am I am I in the upside of South Carolina? Like, what's what's happening here?" And as I as I go back and forth between the cultures and the, and the, I'm thinking these same culture, same interests, same music. It was just fascinating to me. And so this really stirred up so much of my my own interest. And so you began historically to look back in the mid 19th century and that Irish and Scots Irish immigration into the South really began to stir up even additional tensions with. The kind of hiring of of slaves, so that, that it was kind of a perfect storm brewing there in the South, as you had more more Irish and Scots Irish immigration, plus you had uh, slaves there. But wh- when the immigrants came, they discovered they weren't really white. <laughs> they they weren't as 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 Matt Ray's book uh, is titled right, not quite white. What did they learn about about their their social status as as poor white people when they emerged? when they arrived in, in the Carolinas and in Georgia and in, in, in the deep South. Right. So that's a complicated history too. And I've spent, I actually spent a year in college going over, I spent at uh, Trinity college, Dublin and specifically studied Ulster and Northern Ireland in order to try to see some of those connections. And so you see most of the people from Northern Ireland coming over in the 1700s, 1800s. And those are usually property people. A lot of them do end up, migrating into Appalachia and and kind of becoming the folk culture in that area that you were talking about. But then there's this different migration that happens in the 1840s, of course, due to the Irish famine. And that's really when you've got the cities in the South, especially the big port cities like Charleston and Savannah and New Orleans and Mobile, they are being flooded with these famine Irish immigrants, basically starving, coming over with just, you know, single young people, no families. And so the men are competing with enslaved people and free blacks to work on the docks or any kind of labor like that in these cities. And a lot of the women are turning to prostitution, which of course creates a lot of problems in the South because babies, the status of babies are dependent upon what is the race of the mother. White women in the South have the ability to create an entire class of free Blacks, essentially, because they would be free by virtue of the mother's race. And so you see this like strict policing of women's sexuality, poor white women's sexuality by the 1840s, 1850s. They're getting thrown into jail all the time because They don't want especially them to be poor enough that they literally say they don't want them to be poor enough to sell themselves to black men. And at the same time, you have these rising labor tensions that you're talking about with poor white men who are basically forming these labor unions and telling slaveholders outright that if they don't do something to protect white men's wages and white men's industry, at least say that there are certain industries that Blacks can work in and certain industries that whites can work in, then they were going to withdraw their support from slavery altogether. And so I I argue that this ultimately kind of creates a three-front battlefield against slavery. You know, we've got both free Blacks and enslaved Blacks on one side, you've got the Northern abolitionists and, and free states from the federal government, and then you've got poor whites, really by the late 1850s, They've got nowhere to go. It's kind of indefensible at that point. And so they have to, they're forced into seceding from the union because they see the writing on the wall that they're going to have big problems trying to keep this going. And they were really, really worried about about this. I mean, this is sort of a huge point of contention. Like, what are we going to do with this class of people we hadn't planned on? Not just being there, but growing in significant numbers, right? It's not like they were just 12 or 13 of them in the town, there was a significant population. In fact, the, the master class, you would say, is it accurate to say that they were, in terms of population, the minority? Is that is that fair? 
Absolutely. Um, even W.E.B. Du Bois says, you know, it's just literally a, a, a couple of thousand families in the South that basically control everything. They're all intermarried. They're all interconnected. It really is almost an aristocracy. So there was this elite class controlling everybody else in the South, freed blacks, slaves, and this population of poor whites. In the 1980s, I think there was a, there was a show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Do you remember that show? Oh, yes. Yeah. I watch it all the time. I was just really curious about, about how they lived. And I, as I was reading the, the book, I was thinking, if there was a, if there was a show in the antebellum period called the, the Lifestyles of Poor White People, what kinds of things would people see on this, on this show? And I'll prompt you with some topics, and you can, you can just sort of riff on, on, what, on what people might see. What, what would you say people would expect to see with respect to their homes and their, and their living conditions? So a lot of travelers actually compared their living conditions to that of enslaved people. The houses that they had were actually pretty similarly built. They're one room cabins. A lot of them made with just notched logs, uh, no windows, you know, no real door. And if they were very, very lucky, they might have a chimney. Um, But, you know, very, very bare bones, if they were lucky, they might have a, a piece of furniture or two, a couple of tools. But most poor whites by the 1850s are in such a bad state of poverty. Like the inequality just continues to grow as cotton prices go up and as, as slavery makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. You know, if you're born into poverty in the South, you're, you're not getting out. You're not getting out. These are very poor people. These are people that have to steal. These are people that are on the brink of starvation many times. And that really is, once you look at the Civil War and you look at what happens after the Civil War, like the, one of the number one things the union's trying to do is just keep alive Black and poor white people in the South because they are in such a, a, a horrific state of, of starvation by then. Yeah. And, and they were, their diets, their diets weren't the best, right? I mean, they, they weren't, they weren't known for eating. In fact, in Georgia, there was a population of dirt eaters. They had the, the red clay would be on their, on their faces. And that was kind of a, a nickname. Do you remember anything about the kinds of th- things that they were really left to eat because they, they just didn't have a lot of, of opportunities uh, to buy the best cuts of meat and things like that? Sure. It was mainly corn-based diet, um, some potatoes, uh, sweet potatoes, things that they could raise in little you know, patches if they did have some land. But this brings us to the bigger point is that they would very rarely have meat and things like that. And so the way that they would get meat was through something called the underground economy, where enslaved people would appropriate things that you know they raised or, or that was on the plantation, were on the plantation that they were working at and trade them with poor whites, usually in return for liquor or things, you know, store-bought things that enslaved people did not have access to actually go out and buy. And so there becomes this like huge underground economy between these people and slaveholders are constantly trying to stamp it out. That's actually one of the big reasons that there are slave patrols is this, this whole underground economy. And their slave patrols are not only going after Black people, they're going after poor whites too, because they know that in this underground economy, you're trading liquor, you know, so that many times leads to sexual relationships. They're gambling together. They're drinking together. A lot of times the men are drinking together and they're starting to plan revolts and plots. Like every time you see this talked about in court records, you know, there's, they're, they're blaming alcohol for a lot of this. So, I mean, it really does pose a big threat to planters and then just their, their safety. The fact that they're not getting murdered in the middle of the night. It's so fascinating that, that alcohol was one of the things that both poor whites and slaves and freed blacks had in common. One could actually write an entire narrative about these relationships just based on alcohol alone, because it was just such, it was just such not only a, a, a social lubricant, but it also served as a, as a place of bringing these populations that people might assume would be against each other, actually brought them together. Like alcohol created a lot of solidarity and the master class needed to stuff that out. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. And I always say that they kept trying, kept trying to establish segregation, but they were not able to do that until well after the first few years of reconstruction. Yeah. And, and as, as you, as you noted, 
I mean, there were, you know, alcohol sort of relaxes your your inhibitions and people that you might not think are attractive become attractive. And so what you also found was just a lot of interracial relationships, which which created a lot of biracial children. Was that infrequent? Was that frequent? Was that did it happen a lot? It seemed to be very frequent, actually. And I mean, just to look at the sheer number of court cases there are throughout the Deep South, trying to determine a person's race. When you think about the fact that if they're in court trying to determine a person's race, they have to have money or assets of some kind to be there in the first place. So you're just looking at a very small portion of people in that ratio. My own personal opinion is that every single white person in the Deep South that claims to have Native American ancestry probably has Western African ancestry. And I think that, you know, all of these DNA kits, you know, the the genetic testing, all that, that's going to eventually show that that is the case. But yes, there was a lot of racial fluidity. The best historians like Du Bois show this, again, up until about the late 1860s. And that's when, unfortunately, White elites, the, the the planters, former planters and sons of planters reestablish control over the region. And that's when they really, really try and do succeed in establishing segregation and Jim Crow and the kind of horrible you know, lynchings and murders that would follow for anybody trying to transgress the boundaries of race. Yeah, what's so fascinating when I speak to this, this issue in, in my classes, I often tell them, my students, that the Jim Crow in many cases was was worse in terms of race relations in the South, Jim Crow is actually worse than this sort of later antebellum period. And people don't, I mean, I think this is why this period is so important for people to understand what Jim Crow did, because Jim Crow drove a, a wedge between a community that was functioning in a, in a highly integrated way because they had common interests and common goals. I mean, what they have in common, the master class was against both of them, right? And so there was a level of solidarity there that was destroyed and obliterated by what Jim Crow did. That actually brings me to another point that I, I loved about your book. It was it was a role of education. And I think I think many people may not be aware of the fact that the white master class, yes, they kept blacks illiterate, right? They didn't want they did not want their slaves to be educated or to learn how to read. But they also had some some issues with lower class whites as, as well. Were they champions of, of lower class whites learning how to read and being educated? I mean what were what 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 were some of those positions like from the master class and the lower class whites in terms of education? Right. So there was actually no system of public education throughout the Deep South until the Freedmen's Bureau. Literally, the Freedmen's Bureau is what brings universal education to even white people in the South. Those Freedmen's Bureau schools, the early ones, are are serving Blacks as well as poor whites, not only in in education, but literally feeding them. I mean, that's a great point. So the planters had always used illiteracy to their advantage, and, and mainly because of abolitionism. They did not want anything coming into the region that enslaved or free Blacks could read, or even poor whites could read about slavery or how bad it was, or that there were, you know, other states where, you know, what, what, what freedom was actually like in other places. And they also didn't want poor whites reading about any kind of labor rights or especially this is why the Republican Party at the time is such a threat to them because Republicans at the time are talking, they're so pro-labor and so pro-worker that they didn't want poor whites hearing any of that kind of talk. And so they kept them illiterate on purpose. They did not fund any kind of public education. And I mean, you see they're going through, planters are going through the mail. They're, they're looking for anything that they don't want getting into the hands of, of the masses. And people are being lynched, both black and white people being lynched if they have reading materials, certain reading materials that speak to um, abolitionism or speak to even, you know, why slavery is bad for poor whites. And so what, what sorts of things did being an illiterate white person keep them from doing? in terms of their local communities, right? If you're, if you're white and illiterate, you don't have access to, to some things I'm, I'm imagining. Is that, is that fair? It's absolutely fair. I mean, you, you can't read a contract, you know, you, you see all of these contracts signed with an X. So labor, your employer can completely take control of everything, all your assets, anything that you have. 
You can't read even something to sign to rent land. You can't vote. I mean, that's a, that's another thing that most of the antebellum period, poor whites are not voting, are not allowed to vote just because they don't own land. But as states change that, um, there are still many different other ways to disenfranchise them, including the poll tax, which they would, of course, use later to disenfranchise black men. But also back then in the antebellum period, you had to actually go in front of people and vote in viva voce and in voice. You had to vote out loud, say your vote, cast your vote in front of everyone in town. And so you literally have the three election officials who are like the biggest, uh, most powerful planters in the region sitting there that you're giving your vote to. And so that you can't imagine that kind of pressure because those are the people that own everything in the county. Those are the people that would be employing you. Those are the people that would be renting you land. And so there's, you know, there's so many layers to this and there's so many parallels to um, what we are continuing to go through today. But yeah, there were, there were, there were so many ways that they could disenfranchise poor whites. And if the ones that they didn't disenfranchise, they would get them really drunk and whip up a bunch of racism and, and xenophobia and whatever they needed to do to get them to vote the way they wanted. So there, there really was a social hierarchy and there was sort of systemic disenfranchisement of poor whites. I mean, it wasn't just social. It was planned. It was it was intentional. It was it was on it was on purpose. And they and they and they really saw, as we said before, they they really saw poor whites as a nuisance, right? They were it was kind of a they were a thorn in the side of the of a master class. It really impacted how they how they defined the humanity of of poor whites. I mean, phrases like white trash, right, redneck. I mean, lubbers and things like that kind of emerged in the in the context of, of this. What what were some of the stereotypes that that the master class had about poor whites? I mean, what's so interesting about about this as you as you answer it? It's often fast forward to the 1980s. What I find is when you think about sort of suburban elites. And stereotypes of, of inner city blacks, the parallels to me are, are fascinating. So, what what was what were some of the, the the ways in which the sort of master class looked down on and stereotyped the white underclass? I mean, it's it's exactly what you're saying. It's I mean, again, these are these are functions of poverty. It's that you know they're lazy because they don't want to take a job where they're working you know twelve hours a day in a really really dangerous situation and don't they still make enough to feed their kids. They say that they're lascivious or, or, you know, lewd and because they don't get married in a church or get married in the state because, you know, the men are constantly moving around looking for work. And this leads to short term relationships and female headed households. And, you know, it's 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 almost a matriarchal society in a lot of ways. It's the uh, the you know, the drug dependence, which at the time is alcohol. And if they're lucky enough to have the money for it, some kind of opiate. And they would actually mix them together a lot of times. And then just the fact that they had too many children, they would talk about this all the time, you know, as they're, as they're having like 10 or 12 children. So it's, none of these stereotypes have changed. It's always, it's always been the same. And it's always been stereotypes associated with poverty. They really focus on, on vagrancy laws. You, You focus a lot on that. Can, can you explain what vagrancy was and why it was such a, such a big issue? Sure. So vagrancy law is the only law where you can be arrested for essentially doing nothing, literally doing nothing. So that can mean that you're standing on a street corner, you know, just staring into space. You can be arrested for vagrancy law. And I found that in the antebellum period, the southern states used vagrancy law to lock up poor whites whenever, basically whenever they wanted. Uh, A lot of the reason seemed to be that poor white women were either thought to be sexually promiscuous or that they were worried about them having sex with black men or for on the other side for men, it was because they were, you know, drinking with blacks, gambling with blacks, having you know, different social interaction, black friends. And so it was, it was really an attempt to establish segregation in a lot of ways. And it was a way that you could arrest somebody without actually having to, to really prove anything that they did. And they would throw them in jail for years. I mean, the the standard throughout the, the Deep South, the standard jail time for vagrancy was as long as manslaughter, two to four years hard labor, where you would, you know, that was mostly a death sentence throughout the Deep South. You're going to prison, you're going to be dead. 
that really takes us to the, the ways in which the criminal justice system was used to control poor whites. So I, I have a Cambridge University Press book on uh, mass incarceration and overcriminalization. And my thesis in the book is that America historically, I mean, yes, we saw the the spike in, in black incarceration in the 90s, 80s and 90s, but America's disposition toward incarceration has always been about poor people. It's been it's been a way that we have controlled poor people. And what has mattered is what population and what demographic of poor people are living in a particular neighborhood at a particular time is going to reflect who ends up in prison. And in the Deep South, during the antebellum period, yeah, the criminal justice system was used as a way to control slaves and freed blacks. But I believe, based on what you're saying, that the criminal justice system was also used as a way to control poor, poor whites. How did, how did that work? Absolutely. It's, it's really odd because you would think that most of the people in these jails would be black, but most of the people in the jails and even in the prisons in these deep south, outside of Louisiana, were white in the antebellum period. They, they were poor whites because you, you know, you're not sending enslaved people Usually if there was an enslaved person in jail, it was somebody who had escaped and they're literally just holding them there until their master can come pick them up or they can be transported. You're not sending enslaved people to jail. You're just beating them you know, to within an inch of their lives and then putting them back to work as fast as you can. But there were lots of free blacks actually in, in jail and in, and in prison. And so you see that they're being policed just as much as poor whites, because again, they don't fit this dichotomy of like, white slaveholders or black slaves, right? Or So you, they create this, this kind of third class of people that the slaveholders don't really know what to do with or how to control. They were more than willing to use slave patrols, as you said, they'll use jails, right, to, to control them. I mean, that's the American narrative. We don't like poor people. We have contempt for poor people. It doesn't matter if they're white, if they're black, if they're Hispanic, if they're Asian. If they're poor, we just don't like them. We don't want them around us or our kids. And so what do we do? We use the criminal justice system to control them. That's part of the American story. And it's part of the, the story of, of the South. I mean, this sort of Southern gentleman narrative about the South is not was not universally true. I mean, it wasn't the case. What it meant to be a Southern man, I think what you're saying is, is about a narrow class of men, a narrow class of women, it's sort of this sort of Southern, you know, you think about Gone with the Wind, right? It's just, it's, that was not the norm, right? That was the minority. And the criminal justice system was, was one way to keep poor whites that people didn't want anyone else to know about, right? Out of the public space. Is that, that's fair, right? Absolutely. Keep them out of trouble, you know, keep them from going in and stirring up problems with the enslaved and, and you know, banding together to, to lead some kind of rebellion. Because again, you look at John Brown, you know, there's a, there's a reason that the Civil War hits right after John Brown's raid, because you see planters' fears materialize in a biracial band of people, you know, taking, taking things over. And so as we are approaching the Civil War, politicians are trying to appeal to this class of people to sort of join their cause. What were some of the, the ways in which sort of Republicans or Democrats, I mean, how, how did, how did the politicians who, who now needed them try to recruit them and how, what, what, what did that look like? So the first people who are joining the, the Confederacy are actually all slaveholders or sons of slaveholders or people who are working as merchants or lawyers whose jobs depend on slavery. Those in now, now that's been proven actually quantitatively to political scientists have done the work that's been all proven. You don't see many poor whites actually joining up um, until the Conscription Act of 1862. And so the Conscription Act literally forces them to go. And this is uh, when you have so many people starting poor whites deserving. You've got people deserting in droves so that by 1863, 1864, you've got almost two thirds of the Confederate army gone, literally just gone back home because they, they have no desire to go fight for these rich slaveholders who they hate anyway. Um, again, not because they really felt some way about slavery or the Confederacy. I don't call them unionist. Most of them were not even educated enough to really know what was going on, but they knew they didn't want to have to go fight to protect slavery in the interest of these slaveholders. And so they'd be sent off to battle 
At the same time, I should add that there was a law passed that exempted the richest slaveholders, the people that owned more than 20 human beings, from going to battle. And so this is when you get the whole rich man's war, poor man's fight. And you really kind of get this class defection of people just going back home, wanting to live their lives. They're anti-Confederates. Now, you know, at the same time, on the Union side, you've got all of these Black Americans escaping to Union lines and then Black men joining the Union Army and literally serving, making up 10% of the Union Army. That's what literally ends up winning the war is that you've got all these Black men fighting for the Union. At the same time, you've got all these white Southern men fleeing home. Right. And it's just it's just such an extraordinary story because I think people just assume that all white people in the South during the antebellum period were pro-slavery. And that is incorrect. That's what you're saying as well. Right. Right. A, A lot of poor whites, it seems like, again, because almost all of them are illiterate, we don't have their thoughts on things a lot on this issue. But there is one record group called the Tennessee Veterans Questionnaires. These were conducted around the time of World War I, but you can look back through these questionnaires of these Confederate veterans and the ones who were poor whites literally, you know, say they did not care about the issue of slavery. Either it was that or some of them were, again, they were either unionist or they were just, they were actually sympathetic with the enslaved. You know, again, saying the kind of things that you had said earlier, that we both hate the same people they're being oppressed just like we are. They're, you know, shared sympathy or empathy with, with the plight of, of black Americans. So were these were these poor whites racists? I mean, that's a contentious question, highly debated. What was their sort of racial views in general with respect to blacks, would you say? So again, that's really hard to know. My, I would assume they are racist, but again, that they are kind of a lot of the kind of white racists we see today, the people that make exceptions for black people, they know, you know, in their own little communities and have have friends and are. But yes, are they are, when you live in a society based on racial slavery and that's what you grow up seeing every single day? I don't know. You know the avenues to not being a racist, I think, are very, very few. Yeah. And it, it's so fascinating because poor whites, although there was some racial tensions, they were willing when it was necessary to build these initiatives of solidarity against against the, the master class. As we close, I just I'm just curious to know like what happened to poor whites during Reconstruction? Did they just disappear or what, what happened to them? So that's really, really interesting. I, I love this question. So this is what Du Bois really gets into in Black Reconstruction. And the early years of Reconstruction, you've got these amazing Black leaders, Black male leaders coming out. Many of them are are trained as ministers and in the church. They're courting poor whites into the party. They're they're showing them why their interests are aligned. They're saying, let's take up the big plantations and we'll split them up between all of us, all poor people in the South, regardless of, of race. If you don't have land, let's split up their plantations and everybody gets a lot of land. They're talking about education and schools and labor rights. And there is a coalition in the first few years of Reconstruction. And there is a time of real hope. And Du Bois says it's really the main time in our nation's history where something could have changed. Something positive really could have been born. But of course, within a few years, you've got the rise of the Klan. You've got all of these different vigilante terrorism groups, essentially, from the slaveholders and you know, their massive wealth because nobody was ever punished. Nobody was ever punished. No, no land was ever taken. Wealth never changed hands. Nobody had to pay reparations. And so the balance of power never really shifted because they still owned all the land and thus owned, you know, all, all employment, everything, all the power was still theirs. And so they were able to take back over through that, through violence. And unfortunately, that's when you kind of see this very impermeable kind of line going in between. Uh, poor whites and blacks. And it really grows throughout the the 1870s. Someone reads your book, they get to the end and they say, wow, this is, was really, really fascinating. What's the, what's the one sort of big idea, big takeaway you like readers to, to walk away from with this, with this particular book? What's, what's the one thing you want them to really, really get about, about this story? 
I think it's that there are certain times in our nation's history, and I honestly think we're we're entering one right now that we've been entering it in the last few years, where there is an actual chance. You've got this, you know, just this moment of hope and chance to actually change things and for for poor people to come together. And it's a once in a generation, once in a lifetime thing. You see it in the again, early reconstruction, you see it in populism in the 1880s and 90s, and in the 20s and 30s with the different socialist and communist groups, and then with the civil rights movement. Well, our time, I think, is now, and we've, we've seen a lot of this with Black Lives Matter movement and the kind of, even the, the interracial component to that as well. I mean, that's, that's the most white people ever going out to really protest against white supremacists. So I think that's... You know, that, that gives me hope. And I think that we need to look back to to our history to kind of see what strategies work, where we went wrong and what we can learn from it. The book is titled Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South. Dr. Carrie Lee Merritt, thank you so much for joining me on the Anthony Bradley Show. I'm going to say something really obnoxious. I think every American needs to read this book. I'm going to, I'm going to say something even more crazy. I don't think you should be allowed to graduate college anywhere in America without reading this book. I think everybody should read it. Your kids should read it. Christmas presents, birthday presents, Easter presents. Anytime you have an opportunity to give somebody a gift, give them this book. It's essential, I think, that we have this history because to me, it just fills in so many gaps, as I said earlier, in understanding how we get to the, how we got to the present. Right. You will you will never understand how Donald Trump became president without reading stuff like this. I mean, this this history, this book is so, so important and it is brilliantly written. It's got great resources. It'll send you down a rabbit trail, a rabbit hole of of really, really good, good references. And I, I just think this book is something that everybody has to read. If you're a college student, walk over to your library right now and tell your librarian to order this book and put it in the stacks and not an e-copy, get a hard copy and have it in the stacks in your, in your library. Thank you so much, Dr. Kaylee Merritt for joining us. This is really, really thrilling conversation and I'm going to do whatever I can because I'm such a fan of this book to get as many people to buy it and read it and give it out and, and start a larger conversation about this. So, so thank you. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Bradley. It's a pleasure. I would also like to thank my Patreon supporters for their generous support of this project. If it were not for your generosity and support, this project would not be possible. You all are the most important part of this experience. Thanks to you all for joining us today on this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show. If you enjoyed it, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment on the various platforms where the podcast is heard. And I look forward to engaging you again here at the King's College in New York City on The Anthony Bradley Show. Thank you.